Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So far, so better than we could have hoped for. The 2021 Giro d'Italia is already turning out to be a tremendous addition. Great drama, great scenery, exciting racing, new challenges. Is it any wonder that so many people think the Giro is the greatest of all Grand Tours? While its French counterpart takes all the glory and attention, the Italian race is the one for the real fans, the real experts, the really knowledgeable. If only the Italians had a word for that sort of person. Also on this podcast, Dan Bigham on reverse engineering your way to sporting success. This is Ruler Conversations brought to you by Lacquer. Bicycle insurance powered by the community. Emilio Previtali is editor of Ruler's Italian edition. Emilio, welcome again to the podcast. I imagine you're enjoying seeing racing again on some familiar roads. Yeah, I really like to see the the races, and I also like to see a, a bit of people around because it's is is a way to come back to uh, normality, and so. The Giro is, is like a festival when, when it's coming in town. Uh, this year in particular, uh, it's, it's really a, a big uh, festival. The people are really enjoying to stay outside. And so every, everyone is enjoying the Giro, not only the passionate of cycling. And this is really good. What are your memories of growing up watching the Giro? Well, the, the memories for, for a kid are always that uh, at some point they, they bring you and they bring you to see the Giro. And you basically, you don't understand what is going to happen because they bring you uh, on the road and then uh, you have to understand that the, the race is not just a race because uh, actually the race is like maybe one minute. You see the, the bikes going in front of you, but is the, the day, you know, because the, the day when the Giro is coming in your town, everything is changing. And I remember when I was a child, we stopped at the school and we went outside because the Giro was passing through and uh, all the kids, all the teachers, we were together and we had a kind of education about cycling in that way. The problem is that no matter how good the Giro is, there's always a sense that everyone is really waiting for the Tour de France in July. Um, how is that viewed in Italy? Everyone is waiting the the Tour, but not in Italy. I mean, the main race is, is the Giro. And uh, there is a big difference between the Giro and, uh, and the Tour. And this difference is something that maybe just an Italian can understand. The Giro is at the beginning of the season when the athletes, the cyclists are doing the Giro. The people is working, is not in the, at the holidays. And the tour is when people normally is at the sea or in the mountain for the holidays. So the Giro is the race to have an holiday during the week. So people is used to take one day off and go to see the race. You know, for, for Italians, the tour is just the race they do when you are in holidays, but it's not so relevant. Of course, there are a nice ride there, nice climb, but 
but the Giro is the Giro, it's not, not the Tour. If you were selling the Giro as the better race to people outside of Italy, what would you say makes the Giro um, the better race? What what can the Giro offer? How much time I have? I, like three hours? To... As long as you want, as long as you want. I mean, no, I'm joking, but uh, there are a lot of reasons. I think uh, as first, uh, from uh, like a passionate point of view, the stages of the Giro, there is not the classic uh, two weeks or week of just for flat and speed and, you know, pretty boring uh, stages you have at the, at the Tour. At the beginning, just at, at the first week, uh, normally uh, you already have a kind of uh, taste of the Giro, what will be uh, the last week, because they bring the people in the Appennini normally, and you, you have the first uh, stage arriving in the top of, uh, of one month, and you understand who is really going to crash or maybe who is going to put the hammer down on, on the race. And so that's one of the reasons. Then I think uh, Italy is a really unique place because in like in 200 kilometers, you can go from the sea to the hills, lake, uh, even really big climbs. And so during one stage, you can see really a lot of different landscape. And then of course, if you come in Italy and you see the Giro is incredible because you feel that the, the people really like to go to see the Giro. And so the day before you go there, you, you sleep there maybe in a tent waiting for the people because normally they close the road and you really enjoy the, the moment when, when the cyclists they are passing in front of you. And you understand that it's not just that short moment, but it's the day you spend on on the climb, on the mountain, see the Giro. Uh, certainly after the um, Second World War, um, we think that the Giro took on uh, an almost sort of mythical importance for Italians in the, in the life of Italy, in the days of Coppi and Bartoli. Is it still as important to Italians or has you know football and other things overtaken it? The Giro is really important because it's the connection with sports for people who normally is not sportive because uh, cycling is the only sport you, you you can't avoid i mean you are on the road and at least you have to wait because if the giro is, is in on your road you have to to wait and that's a good reason to stop and go outside of your car and see the cyclist and uh, it's really relevant it's really important and it's not just um a sport event, I would say that is, is an industry because when a Giro is coming in a place, is moving so much uh, money and interest and uh, a lot of companies, uh, big and small, they are planning their activity uh, with the Giro. Of course, you bring attention, you bring the media, the TV, but also people coming to see the, the, the race. And so... Uh, it's, it's really re relevant. I would say that is the most relevant. Of course, the, the football is really relevant in Italy, but football is more for people who want to go to the stadium and cycling is for everyone. And would you say that uh, cycling in general in Italy is in a healthy state at the moment? Uh, it's incredible. I would say that it's really incredible. I live in uh, Bergamo. It is a place where uh, it's really famous for cycling. It's the place of Gimondi, who was born uh, here. And cycling is, is really deep into the 
uh, mind of the people here. And I live in in the hills here uh, outside of the town. And every time I, when I go outside, I see uh, uh, in the last five kilometers, maybe I meet uh, 100 cyclists if you go in the morning. And, and it's so incredible because the people is, the age is changing from really young people to really old people. But also there is a good mix uh, between cyclists because you bring at the same time a person who is maybe a, a worker, a, a class worker, can be a lawyer, can be a really rich people, a person, and they stay together and it's really important. I would say that cycling in Italy is a kind of glue, taking together the people and uh, it is when, when you are dressed like, a, a, you know, with a lycra, you are a cyclist, you are not a, a lawyer or a doctor or what, whatever you are, you are just a cyclist, and that's really relevant. Now, as we talk, as we record this, Ineos Grenadiers and Egan Banal have um, started to put a sort of real marker down for the control of the race. Um, do you think what, what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of weeks? I mean, I'm, I'm really hoping for the casino, we say, like the casino is when everything is happening at the same time and you don't understand what is going to happen. And uh, of course, I hope that uh, we will see some battle, you know, because cycling is not about winning, it's not about uh, to be the first, but it's about the, the fight. And it's so beautiful when you see the cyclist trying to do something more and trying to attack. And I expect that, as always, we say that the third week, you never know what is going to happen because uh, the cyclists uh, on the top of the ranking now are really young and we don't really know if they are uh, strong enough for the third week. And so I'm curious to see if the last week will be really interesting. Okay, Emilio, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Italian or the English versions of Ruler or both, uh, along with our sister Spanish magazine, Volata, on Ruler.cc. Thank you, Emilio. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinoui and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication go to ruler.cc I'll leave you to it This is Ruler Conversations brought to you by Lacquer Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists from the coffee and cake rider to the crit racer Lacquer has transformed traditional insurance. No more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the Lacquer Collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. Claims are handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day. With no depreciation or excess, they've ditched annual contracts with Lacquer. If you want to leave, you can. 
anytime. If you head over to www.lacquer.co, new customers can get their first 30 days free by signing up today with the discount code RULER. You may remember Team KGF from a few years ago as the Derby-based track outfit who took on some of the biggest squads in the world and won. They were so successful that the UCI changed the rules so that only national teams could compete at World Cup level. Dan Bigham was a member of that team and he's since used his engineering and science knowledge to bring innovation to elite teams and riders, including the strongly fancied Danish track squad. Now he's written a book, Start at the End, in which he explains how the principles of challenging established thinking and reverse engineering can be used in sport and life. With all this, it's easy to forget he's still an elite racing cyclist himself. Yeah, uh, I guess I get um, well, probably a bit more well-known from, from the engineering side, or at least it seems to be that way of late. And uh, yeah, I, did, I obviously came into cycling through racing and it's what I've always enjoyed, the competition side. It's... Yeah, probably the major reason I'm in the sport, really. It's just fun to be competitive and to have those kind of challenges. Uh, it's going all right of late. There's obviously not a huge amount of racing going on, at least domestically. But I got a couple of races in over in, in Denmark when I was over there with work. And it was just nice to, to be back on the bike and seeing how the legs were. It seemed to be in a good place. There's a few bigger goals later on in the year that I really want to hit full gas. So I'm not, not on the ground running as such yet. Just... Um, keep training and and keep my head down and then sort of August, September, October where where the big goals are. Going back to sort of the beginning of the story, we've talked about the uh, story of Team um, KGF before on this podcast. We had Jacob Tipper on uh, a while ago. Uh, But for anyone who doesn't remember or who hasn't heard the story, give us a brief summary of of what happened. Sure. So it kicked off uh, December 2016. Uh, it was myself and Charlie Tanfield. We were riding for the same road team. We were training in Derby for the, for the individual suit at the National Championships just a few weeks later. So the end of January 2017. And uh, when you've got two riders and we're going pretty well on the IP, you're kind of halfway to a team pursuit. So we thought, let's give it a go. Uh, let's get hold of a couple of riders. Uh, I went, uh, I approached Johnny Whale, who I knew through university. He was at Loughborough Uni at the time, was training on the track and uh, he was keen. He was in. I sold him on the premise that don't worry, you don't have to get round. You just do a big turn and eject. Uh, and then the exact same premise, I sold Jacob Tipper on and he was in as well. Obviously, in the end, someone had to get round and thankfully Tipper did. Uh, and we pretty much, well, it was like a, a quick, um, a mini reverse engineering four-week sprint really into the national championships, doing all we could in a four-week window to optimise the four guys we had. Uh, so we, we went to the nationals. Myself and Charlie were, were one-two in the individual suit. I won the kilo and we went in hot favourites to win the team pursuit against the, the national team, which we, we just about did by about four-tenths of a second, which is pretty close. Um, it's less than the, the difference that our Aerosox gave us that morning. So thanks to the EPS guy for dropping them off. And yeah, we we broke the competition record. We beat the GB Senior Academy and, and won the team pursuit. So we were pretty happy. And um, It's fair to say, isn't it, that it put a few noses out of joint at the time? <laughs> yeah, I don't think people expected it, which is, is always nice to fly in under the radar. And then, yeah, it definitely was unexpected. Well, what comes across... Um, a lot in the book I guess is kind of two things uh, to me one is uh, this idea that you should get as much data as you can and use the data as much as you possibly can Um, one of the things you say is you know knowledge is more important than talent is that still something that sort of guides your work 
if you can't, if you're measuring something, you're not using it, then you're wasting your time. You always want to measure the right things and, and know what those are. And I think we were quite lucky to have the, the backgrounds that we did between us, two of us being engineers, one being a sports scientist, one being a psychologist. We had a lot of, I guess, good object, objectivity and a good understanding of our fields that we knew where we wanted to, to, to dig for those, those nuggets as they were. And then also just trusting the data. I think a lot of people question it. And when we were, I guess obviously done experiments and stuff at university and to then actually have this this project to get our teeth stuck into to try and address those ourselves it was it was nice and we believed in it wholeheartedly and I think once you buy into it and you see the value in it and it works then it's this kind of continual process of just well if that worked then let's dig in a bit more and and find something else to to look at and something else to to try and improve and um, it's a good good sort of aspect it's kind of a positive cycle really and um, we all really engaged into it and I try and apply the same process with everybody really to, to try and be objective to, to bring that sort of engineering and scientific approach to to their performance and, and not just stick with the way they've always done things. Yeah because the other thing that comes across very strongly is kind of challenge every assumption I mean challenge the way everything is done and I guess cycling and particularly on the track um, is a sport where people for a long time have done things because well that's the way we do things. Yeah it's not a good reason to do anything just the status quo is is exactly that and I think it was I've always enjoyed I guess questioning and okay it's got me into a bit of trouble always sometimes anyway when you're you're asking a lot of hard questions because a lot of these people have, have had more great success but also have have lived their lives by these methods and for somebody to come in and say but really why 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 are you doing like this why why are you doing like that why why is this the way it is and sometimes it's, it's hard it's painful and, and change is exactly that and um, some people struggle with it but I think because as a team we didn't have that that history that that background we just came in as just a load of guys having a go at track cycling we didn't have that those preconceptions of how things should be and um yeah obviously came in and challenged a lot of people and they, they struggled with it at first we, we had a lot of people looking at us weirdly and questioning us and saying oh, that's, that's, that's not right that's not how you should do a team pursuit you, you're doing these wrong you shouldn't change like that you shouldn't do these turn lengths and well we, we're doing it for a reason we're not just winging it here we, we have some good ideas and some logic and objectivity behind it and lo and behold people have then realized well if they want to go faster they need to to adopt the same mindset and uh, yeah the past few years in the world of team pursuit have, have been a bit crazy the world record's gone from a, a 50 to a 44 it's the, the biggest jump that it's, it's seen in some time so it's I think that, that mindset's rubbed off on a lot of federations and they, they've they've thrown out the the old rule book and, and just gone in with a fresh clean sheet of paper which is nice. Uh, give us some examples of where you've sort of challenged some old assumptions and, and it's paid off. The two clearest ones uh, which Chris Boardman spotted now on immediately actually at the Manchester World Cup which is our second World Cup and the first time we were on Eurosport and, and TV uh, were both our long-term strategies and our change strategy. We had well a motley crew, you could call it, um, between us. We had we had four guys. You have you don't have a choice of the whole nation. We had the four of us, and we have to optimize that. And the the strengths and, and weaknesses that we had were, were very different between all the athletes. So Johnny is incredibly strong anaerobically, but from an aerobic perspective, he's nowhere near, say, Charlie, who could well, and has ridden some of the fastest individual pursuits in the world. Whereas Johnny's more of a kilo team sprint kind of guy. So it makes sense when you look at the physics to use him for one big long term. 
So uh, historically, everyone would go, well, let's let's start and we'll do lap turns for the next 16 laps. Well, that's great, but Johnny would be sitting in the line burning up what's known as anaerobic work capacity and would give us less work as, a, as an athlete. We'd maybe get two laps or three laps out of him. Whereas when we put him on the front immediately, he can ride for six laps. So that means by the time the rest of us start riding, we're six out of 16 laps into a race and none of us have touched the front yet. Okay, we have three in the team, but when you look at the physics and the energy demands of that, is we're in a much better situation for it. And then, yeah, the second one was the longer turn strategy. It's quite simple when you understand it, that every time you do a change, you lose a bike length, quite literally, because the man at the front is joining the back. The more changes you do, the more distance you lose. So if you can do half as many changes, you lose half as much distance. So most, most teams were doing in the region of, well, 10, 12, even more changes in a race. And we dropped that to five, four or five. So suddenly you've got six or seven bike lengths on every other team for no extra effort. You're riding longer turns, but more well-paced. You actually lose more energy in changes as well because you're having to ride out in the wind to get back on. So that was, was a big one. And that's been heavily adopted across the board. So from the single lap strategies now, you see the best teams in the world are doing two, three, even four lap turns. Uh, Ghana for, for Italy and, and Roddenberg for the Danish team before I joined, were doing four lap turns to finish the, the team pursuit off. And it's exactly that. They've just looked at the, the maths and gone, it's, of course, it makes sense. Why didn't we do it? At, at times, what you're talking about um, and the stories that you're telling sound a little bit like um, the sort of uh, the marginal gains um, famously used by um, British Cycling and Team Sky in the beginning. Um, but there are also points where you're sort of sceptical of marginal gains or that sort of principle, um, particularly if it's inflexible, particularly if it's just too rigid. Yeah, I think, well, in the first instance, there were massive gains. Um, we've always laughed and joked about that, that some of the, the things, some of the gems were, were big and like, the change strategy was was huge for that, that suddenly you're finding seven tenths in a four minute event that, that typically differentiates first, second, third. Um, so I'd call that a massive gain rather than a marginal gain. But exactly that, some of them are very inflexible and they're, they're doing it just because it seems a little bit faster rather than really digging into getting your teeth stuck into something. And people are quite happy to just make small little iterative improvements. And I think that's the way with the world of cycling, right? One, one bike from its previous generation might be a small step forward and that's great for marketing. It means someone will buy a new bike and the next generation's a little bit better and a little bit better. But we didn't want to be just a little bit better. We couldn't be just a little bit better because everyone else is just doing a little bit better. We want to come from just about winning the national championships to winning World Cups and breaking world records. It's You've got to make big leaps forward and, and be ambitious in that and look towards where you're going to find more significant gains and really work towards it. Um, I think we were quite lucky that we had a lot of intelligent people around us. We always tried to to search out those people who had really cool ideas and places like Twitter, sounds really funny, but has so many very smart people on there who are very keen to talk about that. And obviously we've had some great people ab aboard with, with Medicordy and Steve Faulkner and, and Kurt Bergen-Taylor who've all gone on to, to awesome stuff within the sport. But there are a lot of the people outside of that who we literally just dropped a message to a, a DM on Twitter or found their email on a, on a university website and hop over to uni and have a coffee with them. And a lot of people are very generous with their time and their ideas when you're open to embracing those ideas and, and putting them into practice, because quite often, especially in elite sport research, trying to find a practical output is, is quite tough. You'd do well to come up with an idea and go to British Cycling and have them using it 
week later at a World Cup. Whereas there we were just knocking on the doors of, of people at every university nationwide saying, tell us all your brightest ideas and we'll do, a, do our best to utilise them. So how does that sort of transfer into what you're doing a lot of now, which is working with other elite teams? I can understand how it works, you know, when there's just a group of flatmates who are giving it a go because they may as well, um, as opposed to going to an established pro team and getting them to change what they're doing. It can be hard. It definitely is harder because you have to have buy-in across the board and these teams have established systems and hierarchies. And it's something that I, I have struggled with, I won't lie, that um, some teams you go into and you, you find it a hard place to exist because they're not quite so open. Oh, this has to be like this for a reason that you don't particularly agree with. And often it's not always performance first kind of mentality of everything that matters is about getting across the line first and you have to do everything around that as support staff to enable it. I think with Denmark, I've I found a, a great home because they are, they do have that mentality that there is limitations as, as of course there, there always will be budget and staffing and everything else, but there isn't anything they're not willing to at least try and, and, and go towards. And we're very lucky in that situation to not have too many partners and sponsors that are committed to the Federation. So we have the freedom to, just explore and for me it's been such a nice environment to just have have a budget have some time have support staff around me and a load of bright minds with different ideas that have cast their nets far and wide and come in with I think you should try this and I think you should try that and sort of cross-pollination of ideas I mean I called it in the book ideas sex but you've got people coming in and just going ah well I, I did some cool research three years ago on this and we never really took it any further. What about with this idea and this new technology has come along and suddenly you can do something you've never thought of before. And having Denmark as that sort of vehicle has enabled some really cool ideas. And I think from where I was 18 months ago before I joined them to where I am now, I'm very different as an engineer and as a practitioner. Yeah, I think progressed the sport, at least hopefully anyway, when Tokyo rolls out, we've progressed it quite a bit further forward. That's obviously the, the watershed moment. It's, uh, it's been quite, quite a fun one for that. Yeah, from you know everything that we've seen over the past year or so, the Danes are doing pretty well, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's they're, they're fast, they're scary fast. I, that, that was one of the the reasons I messaged them originally. Though, so the UCI obviously changed the, the regulations that, that stopped us from from competing at, at World Cups, and I didn't want to stop. But I enjoyed it too much. I enjoyed the team pursuit. I enjoyed the, the event demands. I enjoyed the optimization and all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. And I could see what they were doing and they were knocking out 48s and 49s for fun. <laughs> I mean, times that we could only dream of at the time. They were doing it with relatively unoptimal kit and with quite raw strategies. And I saw a lot of what we were in KGF 2017 in them. And when you see that and you see all the low-hanging fruit, like, I want a piece of that action, I can make a difference. So quite literally just dropped them a message, dropped the rider a message and said, can, can I have a chat with you guys? And he said, yeah, I'll get you in contact with the head coach. And a few weeks later, I'm in Copenhagen having a meeting. And a few weeks after that, I'm wearing a, a Danish jersey. And um, a few months later, I'm at the national championships. And yeah, I, I had an impact between November and, and that February and I think quite a measurable one. But since then, I think it's... The, the amount of work we've been able to do has, has really brought them on. And um, obviously Tokyo has been delayed and that's uh, quite an interesting one in itself, but I think it, it should be quite a good Olympics. I hope it, touch forward, it's a good Olympics for us. Um, there's the unknowns, which is exciting though, that you've got all these nations that have hidden, hidden away for what, 15 months now since, since the world. We don't know how the Aussies, the Kiwis, the Italians are going. You hear stuff on the grapevine of they did this time in training and they did that. And uh, 
uh, Chinese whispers and it's, it's enjoyable to, to hear it. And it's nice. That it's going to be super competitive at the top end. Obviously I want the Danes to win, but uh, I want to be pushed for it. I want a, I want a good battle. And I think that's probably what we're going to get with people like Lucas Flap and Milan coming along and developing so well in the last 12 months that it's going to be a proper scrap for that gold medal. So away from the sort of top level of competition, uh, what do you think the sort of average rider, the average kind of, you know, weekend racer, can learn from the sort of things that you're talking about in the book, the strategies and the data that you're talking about in the book? I think the big thing is the mindset of understanding how they win. Just It's something I often ask, especially for road racers, and I've done it quite a bit within, within River World Type, we're obviously a, a much lower level team, of just sitting and saying, how do you win a bike race? Which sounds like quite a stupid question, I guess, in a way. Well, of course, you cross the line first, but as you as an athlete, how do you win? What steps from that finish line backwards do you have to do? Are you are you a sprinter? You need to get to 250 metres to go, be fresh, positioned and, and ready to roll. Are you a, a climber and you need to be led out into a specific climb at a specific speed and be able to sustain a certain watts per kilo to get to the line first, etc. And there's obviously many different paths to cross that line first. And it's the same with, with Joe Public, whether you're a crit racer, a time trialist, a road racer, uh, or even just a, a sportif rider, or you're, you're out riding with your mates, you all have goals. And I think it's understanding what those goals are. How do you achieve them? So by breaking them down, what do you need to do to get to that end goal? What do you have that you can use to basically manipulate those factors? If you're racing your mates up the local climb, then what's the kilo could be the, the metric for you. You know what watts you need to target or what mass you need to hit to make sure that you're always dropping them on that three-minute climb back in. Or if you're, you're a top-class national sprinter what peak power do you need to be able to hit and sustain for that final 10 seconds after four and a half hours of hard road racing and I think then as well just trying to to gather those tools around you what what do you have access to is it just simply a power meter and training peaks or can you do a little bit more can you can you look online at um, some of the the larger databases can you generate your own uh, metrics can you have your own tests or scientific tests can you go out and and do a lot of these tests to look at what peak powers and, and speeds that you can hit and what happens when you change equipment, change strategy, have a different lead out? How can you polish those to, to improve your own performance? Um, and then putting that plan into, into action, really going out and, and training and improving all those different aspects and understanding the importance of every single little bit of that puzzle. Because if you have that sort of just single focus on just power or just aero or just roll resistance or just strategy or just nutrition, then you're never going to achieve your absolute best performance. You need to, to understand the relative importance of all of them and, and have a plan to to address and improve every aspect. And at the end of the day, how much of a part does money play in it? How much of a how significant a factor is that? I'd be lying if I said it was irrelevant because it's not. Money makes the world go round, but it, you don't need it for absolute performance. So I mean to put it in, in relative uh, terms, so as a, a UCI trade team, our very first year, 2017-18, we did three domestic races, four international races, paid for all of our equipment, all of our training, all of our nutrition, all our housing, everything on £16,000, which I thought was pretty good for breaking a few records and winning a few World Cups. I think it gave good value for money. That was challenging and obviously we grew as a team from that we we definitely never hit the the budgets that some nations spend on literally a single race for for our whole season 
Um, and it does help. But I think ingenuity and knowledge tends to win out on that one. If you're willing to spend the time to research, to read, to, to look what other people have done, you can learn a huge amount by understanding the processes they've been through to achieve their end result. And you learn their lessons much quicker. There's not enough time in the world to make all the mistakes that everyone's made before you. So learn from them and embrace them. Take those lessons forward and you'll get faster a whole lot quicker. But it just takes the willingness to learn, the eagerness to go out, to research, to speak with people, to, to find out what's gone before. Because there's, there's so much out there and people are willing to be open with it. And you can learn such a great amount and accelerate that process just by being open-minded. And a lot of the examples in the book come from completely outside cycling completely outside sport in in most cases i didn't want to just talk about cycling in the book as much as it's it's a fun topic and there's obviously a lot to talk about but things like uh well elon musk approached with the socratic method to just ask why 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 and to drill down into the base knowledge and the base understanding is it's such a good example and it's it's worked very well for him but even other things so like the, the reverse engineering in the war where the jerry cans were invented and the fact that they were they were snuck across borders and that how much can be learned from that that literally a war can be won on a matter of a well-engineered liquid carrier or container it's you can draw a lot of good parallels from that into the sport and i think it's just giving good examples of that mindset of how people have approached the problem and how that you can use the same same approach for your own performance and yeah it, it might just be racing on a chain gang it might be targeting a big sportif or it might be a big time trial or road race domestically but nonetheless the same theories and the same ideas can be applied to to your own performance okay thanks dan start at the end uh, how reverse engineering can lead to success by dan bigham is published by welbeck and it's out now cheers ian